Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, no funny intro today. We're covering a lot of fairly serious stuff. We're, we do edgy humor, but not that edgy. Uh, we have to begin in a pretty serious place. And we'll be ending in a pretty serious place, too. The uh, latter half of the show today will really have to do with race and racial tensions in the Northeast and how we kind of sublimate and suppress them uh, and the ways in which they come steaming and trickling out when there are incidents uh, like Eric Garner uh, and, and related uh, police incidents. So anyway, that that is to come. We're going to begin, uh, though, with two topics relating to relating to the world of magazines. And magazines have had kind of a rough patch uh, over the last uh, few days or so uh, in the second segment. See, I tell you about the show in reverse order. In the second segment, we'll be talking about uh, the New Republic. Right now, we'll be talking about not just about Rolling Stone, but about the story that uh, Rolling Stone did uh, and what's happened since then. Uh, last month, Rolling Stone ran an article about an alleged gang rape at the University of Virginia at a fraternity house. The, the source uh, of the whole story was a student they identified only as Jackie. Uh, since then, and some of the details of the story have been under assault from other journalists. Uh, and the reporting of Sabrina Rudin Erdley uh, has been called into question from uh, journalists ranging from Hannah Rosen at Slate uh, to Eric Wemple uh, at The Washington Post, a bunch of other people. Uh, the Rolling Stone has kind of responded with a series uh, of statements, a kind of a death by a thousand cuts as they sort of um, changed their relationship to this story. So uh, I'm going to let our two guests pick up the story from there. Uh, David Fulkenflick uh, is here with us. He is a vertically integrated uh, digital media entity. No, that's <laughs> something else, actually. Uh, he is an NPR's media correspondent. He joins us from NPR's New York studios. Zoe Carpenter is with us. She's a D.C. reporter for The Nation, formerly did work at Rolling Stone. Um, so, David, I'm going to let you frame this a, a little bit uh, right now, uh, and presumably because you're David Fulkenflick, Conflict, you'll do a much better job than I just did. I mean, w- what are we talking about here when we're talking about this story? What are the key elements of it for you? Well, your presumptions aside, uh, you know, the reporter involved, uh, Sabrina Rubin Erdely, uh, had set out to figure out a way to tell a larger story of the problem in getting campuses, n- administrations, and students to take the issue of sexual assaults and rape seriously. Uh, for the first six years of my professional career, I covered higher ed. It's a real issue then, uh, 20 years ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago, and it's a real issue now, uh, too. Uh, she then hit upon University of Virginia. She thought that the rest of the country might look at that uh, as more representative perhaps uh, than an Ivy League institution like the one she said that she went to. And I talked to her about that choice, and she said, look, this is just an issue I wanted to take on. And I came across a woman whom she presented only by the name Jackie uh, who had suffered uh, what she said was terribly traumatic, uh, a gang rape by seven men at a fraternity party uh, that took place two years ago in her freshman year at the Charlottesville campus, and that she felt uh, uh, 
you know, additionally beaten up by the reaction of friends who told her not to pursue it in any way administratively or legally, and by the administration, which seemed rather lax in dealing with this. Now, again, this was part of a larger story in which she talked to other people, including a woman by name who said that she, you know, by her full name identified, who gave her own account of being uh, raped. But this was presented as the emotional core of the story, this terrible gang rape by seven men of this young woman uh, known only as Jackie to the readers. Uh, And it was presented almost uh, without attribution. The first, I think, attribution comes about nine paragraphs in. Then again, there's another she says, maybe the 12th and 13th paragraphs. So you have this cinematic account of what happened. And Rolling Stone uh, made a couple of fateful decisions, I think each of which compounded with the others uh, made this turned into a debacle. They were fearful for Jackie's emotional well-being. She asked them late along not to contact the man identified as Ryan, who had been the ringleader of this gang rape, or, as it turns out, uh, others who were involved in it, not to give them a chance to give their version of events, to say, you know, take a leap, to say, talk to my lawyers, or to say, hey, here's evidence I wasn't even in the state at the time. They didn't give them a chance to do anything because Jackie told the reporter in Rolling Stone it would be too traumatic uh, were they to do so. Uh, Secondly, you know, they didn't, uh, it appears, talk to all of the friends whose conversations with Jackie were cited as a kind of corroborative uh, contemporaneous accounts of what occurred in that she had relayed this to friends. It seemed as though the friends had been spoken with at some length. Actually, friends have now told the Washington Post, some of them anyway, that her accounts have changed over the time and therefore they're not quite sure what to believe. Uh, And the third, I think, in some ways, perhaps most faithful decision was not to share with readers these choices. That is, readers were flying blind. They were presented with something almost as though it were fact, certainly as though it was a cinematic narrative that had a logic to it that was contained and was not being challenged in any way. And by deciding to rely on a fraternity official's uh, reaction instead of going to the principals involved and giving them the chance to participate, to rebut, to test some of these very tough allegations, I think, and to not let readers know that they had to look at the story in that light, I think was very fateful and very damaging. Um, Zoe Carpenter, let me bring you into this conversation, and um, but I, I'd love to hear from both of you about this. One, one counter-argument that's been made, I mean, ordinarily it absolutely is the case that you solicit both sides of a story, right? You, you go and you, somebody accuses uh, somebody of X, and so you go to that person and you ask them that question. But it's been suggested that that's not always the case. If this were a, a, a story about getting mugged on campus, it wasn't, wouldn't necessarily be the case that you had to go find the mugger and make sure that that person actually you know, was contacted. Contacted and, and, and told the story of why he or she did or didn't mug the other person. Um, so, Zoe, I'm going to start with you. Is it axiomatic that Rolling Stone made a mistake in, in framing the story the way they did and out of delicacy, out of a concern for, for the, the feelings and sensibilities of a victim to, to tell her story without cross-checking it? Well, you know, I do think that if you're going to make that choice out of concern, as you just mentioned, then, then David's point still stands, which is that that needs to be made clear to the readers. Um, even if ultimately the editors feel that that choice is justified, there needs to be transparency there. Um, and then to add to that, there are also other people besides um, just the accused who could have been contacted as well, such as the friends. 
Um, and David, back to that point, too. I mean, a number of people are besmirched in the story. Obviously, the people most significantly besmirched would be the uh, young men uh, accused uh, of participating in this gang rape. But that portrait of Jackie's friends is unflattering as well. I mean, there's sort of a scene in the story where they're standing outside after this incident has happened, and they kind of talk her out of reporting this, and, and they have pretty craven reasons in this account. I mean, they're concerned they won't get invited to parties anymore, that their own social standing will suffer by association to Jackie. And w- when you read it now with all the sort of the things that have come out and uh, the questions that have been asked, you, th- you sort of think, why did they, I ever believe this in the first place? It just seems so unlikely that people would be standing there in the middle of the night with a young woman who'd been knocked through a glass table and then raped uh, with glass shards having pierced her skin, saying, wow, if we report this, we won't get invited to parties in the future. But those people's stories also were not cross-checked. Yeah, or at least there's no evidence. You know, I, I interviewed Erdely, uh, uh I guess it was last Wednesday, and asked her about that. And she said she didn't feel comfortable talking about sourcing. And I said, well, surely you can tell me who spoke to you on the record by name. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not asking you who you spoke to in addition in, in less formal uh, circumstances. But, uh, you know, on the record means you can tell. And she said, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. And I said, you know, that doesn't give me great faith as a reader for understanding uh, a confidence in how that narrative was presented. She has since said, I think she told the Washington Post, certainly told someone that, uh, you know, it was her effort to give a voice to Jackie and let her position stand. But this was not presented as a first-person narrative. This was not presented as one woman's account. This was presented as uh, the emotional core of a broader story of the uh, of the. Indifference, in a sense, that the university had shown toward dealing with women who had been subjected to sexual attacks and the, the uh, you know, aerobic and muscular efforts by the university to try to protect its reputation over the years. And in fact, you know, they, University of Virginia is among those institutions that are, that are being reviewed by federal uh, uh, officials on this very subject. So it's not as though this is an issue without purchase. But, you know, there was a narrative and you, you can make the case and I've seen the case made that the larger truth is there, but untethered by firm fact in a way that gives me a, a, a great confidence as a reader. I think that, that you know, it, it doesn't do to try to protect the feelings of someone if what it ultimately does is is unravel their narrative in a way that makes them the subject of national scrutiny. Yeah, obviously, there's sort of the, the unintended consequence here is huge. And we'll come uh, as we uh, get towards the end of this conversation and uh, talk about what the what the impact is on, on future allegations of this kind, future stories of this kind. But while we're on this part of the conversation, Zoe Carpenter, um, I, I'm wondering, I mean, Rolling Stone is famous for a certain kind of journalism. First of all, it's famous for its journalism. But, you know, a lot of its journalism has been attitudinal in nature. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how much fact checking Hunter Thompson's reporting would stand up to uh, Tom Wolf. Uh, literary journalism kind of uh, a style that, that, that he invented, at least partly in the pages of the Rolling Stone, running right up through Matt Taibbi, whose journalism is right on point, but argumentative in style. Um, is Rolling Stone held to exactly the same standard of fact that, say, the Washington Post is? Well, you know, I, I fact-checked Matt Taibbi, actually, um, and, and I've been involved in that process, and, and I can say that it's a very rigorous process, um, at least from from my experience, and and I think in some ways would would hold up um, would hold up under more scrutiny than, for example, news articles that aren't fact checked at all except by the reporter. Um, but I think in this case, 
the, the problem was that there was this decision that was made deliberately, it, it seems, from the statements um, to, to not do some, some of the fact-checking that might have happened on other articles. So it seems like this, this is an exception, I think, to um, normal procedures at Rolling Stone, at least as I um, have experienced them. And David Volkenflik, one of the questions to which we do not have an answer and maybe never will have an answer is why exactly were those kinds of decisions made? Were they entirely made uh, for reasons that, that had to do with journalism, with a certain kind of psychological sensitivity, uh, with a, a sense of how this might turn out to be the best possible story? And, and to what degree is everything about this story symptomatic of an environment in which journalism entities thrive on clicks, on traffic? Not that circulation, which is what it used to be called, has, hasn't always been some kind of a consideration, but you know, there is a sense, and it'll trickle into our subsequent conversation about the New Republic, that you, know, you, you, need, a certain, you need to make a splash. And, and I guess one thing people might be asking is, was this written the way it was to make a splash? Oh, I think undoubtedly, uh, you know, uh, in certain kinds of stories, you're looking to make an impact, even if you don't think it's clickbait in the classic sense, right? And uh, this story had impact. The university president, if I uh, get it precisely right, uh, essentially shut down the Greek system activities through the end of the calendar year. There was talk about whether fraternities and sororities should be shut down or, or reinvented or rechartered in some ways. There were, you know, campus protests and vigils, the university president herself having to address uh, not only the the reporter in this case, ultimately, but also people on campus. This was uh, a story that, that, you know, punched and punched hard. And it punched hard because it didn't simply say, hey, you know, rape is serious. But, hey, you cannot look away from this atrocity. You know, but think about that word. I mean, rape is a terribly uh, searing uh, uh, event. And uh, those who are subject to it and have accounts to tell should be treated sensitively and thoughtfully. But you know, we go and report on atrocities that occur around the world, you know, at my network and, and at other places. You know, you, you interview people in Rwanda and other places who have been through, uh, you know, kinds of genocides. Uh, the idea that you are going to put forward an account uh, without somehow trying to bolster the case, make it watertight if that is the core of – you know, this is, this is an advocacy journalism kind of story. It's a journalism with a point of view and I'm fine with that as long as everybody's clear about what it is. But – I'm not fine with not understanding the terms in which it's reported and offered. And that's what happened here. And I think it was a failing of journalism as well on the reporting end and, and then a failing on the transparency end. Zoe Carpenter, are we at a point where we feel as though this story is overarchingly a failure? I mean, there are things wrong with the story. There are things wrong with, as you and David have pointed out, what was and wasn't disclosed to the readers uh, about how the story was put together. Uh, but I don't think anybody is really at the point of saying, well, this story isn't true. That's right. You know, as we can't really say anything um, of certainty yet about the validity of Jackie's claims. And I think that's the really unfortunate part of this, the whole fallout of this, is that um, now Jackie's credibility has been undermined um, when it's really a question of journalistic credibility and integrity. And, um, you know, we, of course, have the fraternity pushing back with certain details, such as they're saying that they didn't have a party on the date that was given in the article. Um, but there's a lot of scientific literature that points to serious um, issues with memory for, for trauma survivors. And so it's really possible that a lot of the holes that are apparently being poked in the article have benign explanations. Um, unfortunately, when there's this much scrutiny and there's this much at stake, um, it's difficult to, to judge fairly. 
Um, Zoe, let me ask you just uh, one other question about this. This is a topic you've been writing about, too. You've been writing about sexual assault in the military in particular recently. Um, when something like this, when a story like this does explode, and this story has not exploded yet, we don't really know uh, for the reasons that you just said, whether it's true or not, but we went through this uh, a bit with the Duke lacrosse case. If a story like this becomes compromised, how much permanent damage or can it do? I suppose there's no real way, way to answer that question, but maybe you can say something about the worry that you as a journalist reporting on these topics and obviously the people who, who care on site, uh, whether it's a college campus or a military base, about this subject, the kinds of fears that get stirred up if a story like this becomes compromised. Well, if a story becomes compromised, it certainly lends credence to the arguments of people who who are convinced that um, campus rapes are an invented epidemic. Um, you know, George Will wrote a uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post that uh, received a lot of attention uh, saying, saying to that effect that um, there really wasn't a problem with sexual assault on the campus. The real problem was false accusations. The data that we have indicates that that's really not true. False reports account for somewhere between 2 and 8% of all reports. Meanwhile, there are so many women who don't come forward, um, and men too, who don't come forward to report assaults. Um, so I, I think this certainly does feed the Fox News heads who already have this perspective. Um, but I think also the, the encouraging thing is that the movement to do something serious about assault on campus and in the military and elsewhere, I don't think that movement um, is going to be compromised in a big way by just one story. Um, you know, the response at UVA indicated that this was not just Jackie's story, that there were um, much deeper issues that needed to be dealt with, and I think that will go forward at UVA and on other campuses. All right, Zoe Carpenter from The Nation, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to grab a quick break, come back, talk to David Folkenflik about one of the other searing magazine stories, this one about the New Republic. All right. Well, uh, we're back. We're with David uh, Folkenflik. He is a vert- vertically integrated uh, digital media empire. Uh, he's also NPR's media correspondent. Uh, David, when uh, Chris Hughes uh, took some of his Facebook money and bought the New Republic, uh, it was clear that he wanted to put it into the forefront of the national conversation. He has succeeded. I have never had so many conversations about the New Republic, uh, if you added up all the ones that I've had for years. But that's because 12 of their paid staff have quit. Uh, a lot of their rather famous in the world of journalism some contributing editors have quit, uh, people they didn't even know they had, their poetry editor, their dance editor, those people have quit. And it's all because, uh, as far as we can tell, because of this vision that they either fear or know is going to be implemented. Uh, and the word clickbait got used in the previous conversation. That seems to be the fear, right, that, that now there's a new decision, new kinds of people are being hired at the New Republic, and this 100-year-old uh, organ of, uh, of, of, I don't know what to say, uh, of journalism and, and of a a thoughtful analysis is going to be converted into something quite different. Is, uh, how does this story look to you? Well, in some ways, it's it's just uh, it's juicy in the sense that it's an almost perfect seeming encapsulation of this uh, of this collision point between the outlook and the fears of uh, legacy media journalists, folks who work for the New York Times or work for ABC News or maybe NPR and other places. Um, uh, including the New Republic, and people who 
look at that and say, God, you guys can't innovate your way out of a paper bag. You try and try and you can't quite do it. I think that's unfair to legacy news organizations that have actually in recent years proven pretty nimble. But nonetheless, you look at some newer players like Vox, where Ezra Klein of The Washington Post decamped with some very high-powered young colleagues and done some really interesting work. Uh, you look at uh, – uh, folks at BuzzFeed, you look at folks at uh, at Mashable, you look at some new players that you just wouldn't have seen in recent years, uh, some interesting stuff starting over at Fusion. And, you know, they say, you guys don't get it. You know, the, the fact that you can generate greater revenues from the legacy broadcast uh, doesn't allow you to build a path to being sustainable in the future where digital is going to be almost the entire game. That's the argument. And you've seen it. You know, Chris Hughes himself is a guy who uh, was a close Harvard friend of Mark Zuckerberg and was one of the first employees of, of Facebook and walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, or at least, uh, uh, you know, assets worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the aggregate. He then ran uh, Barack Obama's t- uh, 2008 social media efforts for that successful presidential campaign. So he's got some digital awareness and know-how. He invested in the viral site Upworthy, uh, which has really in some ways cracked the code of figuring out how to get people to share material. And they do a little bit of work, uh, uh, just a, a nugget here and there of original stuff added to the videos and content and pictures they come across that people may find worth sharing. And to early 2012, you say he buys the New Republic. It's a century old. They just had this huge celebratory party down in D.C. featuring former President Clinton. And the, the editor at the time, Franklin Ford, made this incredible case for the New Republic as this, you know, this bastion of liberal but not orthodox thinking and also of a place that's a journal of opinion and argumentation about culture and literature and arts and letters as well. And Right now, they're saying, look, this is going to be a vertically integrated uh, digital media company, uh, the, the, the point of your, your joke earlier. And, and it's not entirely clear how that's going to play out. I spoke actually to Chris Hughes, giving you a little bit of an advanced taste now, uh, just this morning for a piece that will air uh, tonight on All Things Considered. And he said, look, I want to uphold the values. I want to uphold the principles of the new republic. Uh, but, you know, I can't do that with an aging uh, you know, deficit-ridden uh, magazine. We've got to slash how often we publish, go virtually monthly for 10 copies a, or 10 editions a year. And we've got to reinvent ourselves to be livelier and, and talked about and shared to a much greater degree than we are now. And a lot of people says actually, say, actually, that's not upholding those values. That's exploding them. But that's the tension that you see. All right. We're going to have to stop there with David Fulkenflick. Uh, the New Republic story, soon to be a major miniseries. Aaron Sorkin's <laughs> next project, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. That's David Fulkenflick. We've got to take a little break for a little bit of that fundraising stuff. When we come back, a really interesting conversation about race and, and race in the Northeast and how we talk about race or don't. Yeah, that's it. Honey, I quit. I'm moving on. Yeah, that's it. Baby, I quit. I'm moving on. And one more. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Chris Rock. For show pages, articles, photos, and video, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, a musical hour featuring Elizabeth McGovern and Winter Pills. Now, back to Colin.
the legacy of the South is maybe a more familiar one to us uh, and one in which uh, around which history kind of shapes itself as regards relationships between whites and blacks. But the relationship between whites and blacks in the North and the Northeast is every bit as complicated. It just plays out a little bit more silently. And that's part of the theme of Jason Sokol's new book. Uh, It's All Eyes Are Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, the Conflicted Soul of the Northeast. Jason Sokol is an assistant professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. He will be speaking at the Institute Library. Oh, we love the Institute Library in New Haven on Thursday at 7 p.m. And in fact, a lot of history soaks into the walls there, the Institute Library, history that's uh, very relevant to what we're saying. And Jason Sokol, in a way, uh, there's a relevance to what we're going to be talking about today, just in the way that you see attitudes playing out right now in public and on the Internet around the Eric Garner case, the Cleveland case, the way people talk about the Michael Brown case in the Northeast. Either there are people with very, very specific ideas about policing and how police operate and what the truth or falsehood of certain statements are, or there really is this difficult-to-talk-about racial edge, an edge between uh, blacks and whites that's never really been dulled here in the Northeast. It's a lot of what your book's about. Uh, Maybe we can come to these contemporary uh, incidents towards the end of our conversation, but I don't know where you want to begin in terms of the history of this. Um, Certainly here in Connecticut, we congratulate ourselves as having been this progressive abolitionist state. You look a little bit closer at the history, and it's a lot more complicated. Uh, Nativism and racism have been prevalent here in Connecticut for a long time, and it's something you really do document in your book as well. That's right. My book describes what I see as a duality or a conflict at the center of Northeastern race relations, and my book goes from World War II all the way up to the present. And I argue that on one, on the one hand, various parts of the Northeast and indeed some, certain cities in Connecticut have held genuine movements for interracial and multiracial democracy, often in terms of electoral politics. But at the same time, white Northerners and and Connecticut uh, residents, uh, this is just as true of of them as it is of Massachusetts and New York City, white Northerners have remained extremely committed to a set of practices and behaviors that has resulted in and ensured that our cities and suburbs remain extremely segregated and that our schools remain, remain segregated and that there's a widening income gap between whites and blacks and the persistent problem of police brutality in northern cities as we see now on the very surface of life. The One of those incidents you cite uh, is uh, a speech given by U.S. Senator Abraham Ribicoff, also the, one time the governor of Connecticut as well. Tell the story of that speech. It's a fascinating story. In February of 1970, the longtime Mississippi segregationist, John Stennis, In the Senate, he had added an an amendment to an education bill where Stennis added this amendment that basically said school integration measures had to be uniform across the country. So the Senate couldn't take any action on southern school integration if it didn't also take the same action in the north. And a lot of senators saw this as another segregationist ploy to just slow down desegregation because Stennis knew that a lot of Northerners wouldn't support it if they had to do the same things up north as up south, as in the south. And Ribicoff got up on the Senate floor and he he said, the north is guilty, guilty of monumental hypocrisy in its treatment of the black man. 
So in a way, Ribicoff bared the North's racial soul and, and gave public expression to this, what had been an open secret for so long. And what's fascinating is that a lot of Southern newspapers and Southern senators then depicted Ribicoff as a hero. He was this liberal Jew from Connecticut. And if you read through Southern newspapers, the Richmond newspaper had this amazing cartoon of a um, statue of Ribicoff being built next to the statue of Robert E. Lee. And Stennis also was sort of profuse in his uh, open admiration for uh, of Ribicoff for saying that at the time. And one of the things Ribicoff seemed to be saying, and it seemed to be echoing Stennis's point as well, is that you don't have to have Jim Crow laws in order to have Jim Crow effects. What you really can have is this essentially passive-looking real estate system, which amounts to segregation. In other words, if it's really hard, for whatever reason, uh, for a black person to move into a white neighborhood, you've got segregation, whether you can point to some obviously stated intention or not, right? That's part of the phenomenon you're documenting. Right. A lot of what we understand as Northern racism and Northern segregation was unsaid and was unwritten. So many people refer to it as de facto segregation as opposed to, in the South, de jure segregation. So it's segregation in fact, but not necessarily written into any laws. I mean, I think it is important to recognize that a lot of school boards and school committees did, in fact, enact policies, student transfer policies, redistricting policies that led to segregation of schools. So it's not as though this was just accidental or happenstance just ended up. So there were actually some laws and policies often crafted by northern leaders to ensure segregation. Same thing goes with housing segregation in terms of housing covenants written into deeds, program of federal loans, FHA and VA loans, was very racially discriminatory. So I think it's important to recognize that there was a history of policies and laws in the Northeast that also led to segregation. But there's a huge difference in that it wasn't mandated by every state constitution in terms of the way it was in Jim Crow South. So one of the, one of your we're talking to Jason Sokol uh, right now. Uh, one of your central arguments here, and it's an argument you made in the New York Times recently in an essay called "The Unrestricted, Unreconstructed North: An Outgrowth of Your Book, All Eyes Are Upon Us: Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn: The Conflicted Soul of the Northeast." One of the arguments you make basically is if you never acknowledge you had a disease, then you really can't talk about cures. Uh, you, you can't uh, experience any kind of therapeutic change. And so, to whatever degree we just don't self-identify in the Northeast as a place that has racial demons, that has a history of racism, that has uh, an un- has unsolved problems of segregation and separatism. You never make any progress. And see, do you, you still see that as a moment we're still at, right? That we're still frozen in this moment where we really don't talk about the problem because we haven't even really acknowledged that there ever was a problem? That seems to me accurate. Yeah, I... The South has Confederate monuments in many town squares. Well, it also has civil rights monuments on a lot of those town squares now. And so the South has been forced to reckon with its racial past in a way that I don't think the Northeast quite has. So there are a lot of Northern liberals who will readily admit and acknowledge the deep-seated racism and segregation in the history of the North, but I still think many people think that it's tangential to our regional story, that that's something that happened, but it's not fundamental to who we are. And I would disagree with that. 
I would also point out that the Northeast has a very different racial history than the South because the Northeast has a, what I say is a two-sided history. That is, there were genuine times when movements for racial democracy were incubated. There was a wider range of legitimate views on race in the Northeast. In the South, in the middle of the 20th century, a white person could hold only one view on integration, segregation, that is, to defend segregation. So I think that our history does have these sparks and these flashes of political and racial progress. And I think if we want to, we can embrace that side of the history. I think it makes it hard, and just to sort of uh, come back full circle to where I started out, it makes it hard for us to talk about what's happened uh, in Ferguson, in New York, in the Garner case, in Cleveland. It makes it hard for us to talk about so many of these instances, and we, we've had them here in Connecticut. Um, uh, we've had uh, highly questionable shootings of black suspects by white policemen. They happen everywhere. And if you can't talk about the racial component or if you have a, a climate of denial about racial issues, then you have a lot of people who just want to say, well, this is just sort of basically a police matter. You had a right. suspect. He did things X, Y, and Z. The police responded as they're trained to do. Uh, it didn't work out too well. Uh, these things happen if everybody behaved a little bit better and towed the line a little bit more and didn't carry pellet guns or, or uh, sell loose cigarettes or, um, right. you know, then, then these things wouldn't happen. And you can't talk about the racial part of it. And yet, clearly, uh, Jason Sokol, there's a racial part that needs to be talked about. White Americans have always wanted to claim that they're colorblind, that they evaluate somebody on the basis of the content of their character rather than, rather than their race. And that's why white Americans love to quote, I have a dream, rather than some of Martin Luther King's more challenging speeches in which he takes us to task. And I think this clinging to the fiction of, of colorblindness is leaving many white Americans unwilling to talk about race at this moment in our painful moment in our racial history when, when we really need to talk about it and confront it, especially in these woeful disparities in terms of the percentage of African Americans who are killed by the police versus the percentage of whites. And I've seen some poll numbers which suggest that only 35 or 37 percent of white Americans were disappointed with the Garner non-indictment, and that is stunning to me. It is stunning. Uh, we're going to have to end things there, but Jason Sokol, it is a, a sad and a gloomy note to end on, but uh, thank you so much for your time today. Jason Sokol's new book, All Eyes Are Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, The Conflicted Soul of the Northeast. Thanks for giving us your time today. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Bye-bye. We're going to end the show today with a, a sort of a small story. Uh, it's not a huge, earth-shattering story. It's the story of just one person's or two people's experience on the Internet trying to talk a little bit about the things that are making people nervous these days after the, the deaths uh, in three different places now, really, but one particular death, the death in New York, uh, the Eric Garner case. It's also a little bit of a story, as I say, about the Internet, about um, how people communicate and uh, how people uh, find each other sometimes uh, in not such great ways. So uh, David Barrow is joining us now. He runs a, a bike shop in Tolland. And uh, David, I'm going to let you tell your story, but basically the story kind of starts on Friday when, and it doesn't start on the internet, it starts in the real physical world where you decided to put up a little message on your sign. Yeah, um, on Friday my wife and I had a discussion and I said, you know, I, you know, having grown up in the civil rights era, I'm 58, I felt something towards some sympathy and some compassion towards Eric Garner and what had happened and, and my disbelief, honestly, and our disbelief in what happened with the grand jury finding so we decided we'd put a sign on our business 
sign that said, I can't breathe, rest in peace, Eric Garner. Right after that, I went out and photographed the sign and then posted it to our Facebook account. And that was about 4.30-ish Friday night. So uh, we posted on Facebook. We've got 600 followers, so we don't have many people. And most of them are, are socially active people. If we lose a customer because of that, I was, okay, well, we'll lose a couple of people. But, you know, for the most part, our customers will understand. I got home at 8, and at about 6.30, I flipped on, 6.30, 7 o'clock, I flipped, oh, I opened our Facebook account. And we'd already had 2,000 views. And we had about 40 statements coming through. And the statements were, I can only define it as hate. They talked about how our, that Mr. Garner deserved what he got. He resisted arrest. They said they hoped that our business burned down, that our, that we'd go out of business soon, that if we ever had a problem with police, that they never come. And I said, well, I'm going to let this roll. At 10.30 that night, we had 8,000 views, and the comments kept coming in. We had about 80 comments at that point. I woke up in the morning. We had 10,000 views. Now, we only have 600 people who follow us. And then I looked, and I saw that this thing was now being shared, and it had been shared like 10, 15 times. But the, I guess what got me the most was what I felt was the hate that was coming out of this. And the people, a couple of people would say, hey, you know, it's his freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. But then they'd be shouted down by the masses. And at about 3.30 on Saturday, after 12,000 views and 90 awful comments, I deactivated the Facebook account because I knew that this was just going to, as, as it was being shared farther and farther, that we were just going down a road of, of no return. You know, some of this is, there's sort of a power law on the Internet, which is that 1% of the tr- uh, 1% of the people caused 99% of the trouble. So that, uh, you know, you never know with 12,000 people having viewed the picture that you had up, which was a pretty innocuous statement. I, I mean, the, I can't breathe, R.I.P. Eric Garner. Garner. Mm-hmm. You don't know how many of those people looked at it and thought, well, that's how I feel, too. I mean, I, I, I feel bad. Because those people don't necessarily feel courageous enough or impelled enough to make a comment. And if they see 40 negative comments, they're not going to have the courage probably to jump on and go, oh, no, no, no. There's, there's a whole other way of looking at this. So it is often a very small percentage of humankind that causes a, a lot of that negative feeling. But still, for you, I mean, do you feel as though, well, if you deactivated your store's Facebook account, I mean, this is not only kind of a psychological lesson, but it's, it's a, a lesson with, with real-life consequences. You don't have a Facebook account anymore. Well, we can bring it back up, and we will bring it back up. We've done that before, but right now we don't. I'm going to let this all hash out. But I think what surprised me the most, Colin, was that we didn't see the support for this man and what had happened, and we, and we saw all this negativity. And I will say you're right. For the most part, that's the one percent or the ten percent or the five percent that are gonna are gonna say that anyway. But it was just that it was so viral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a disease, and it kept they kept feeding off of each other. It was like a feeding frenzy, and it just kept going and going and going. And so, like I said, at some point you have to go. I'm gonna take my losses, take my punches, and I'm done. You know, I can't do this anymore. 
You know, there's sort of an interesting media studies lesson to this, too. As you say, you are of an age to remember the civil rights era. In the civil rights era, people functioned collectively, right? I mean, if you were going to get, if you were going to become part of the movement, you'd get together with a lot of other people. You'd go someplace. And obviously, sometimes the places that people went were dangerous to them. You go to Selma, Alabama. It doesn't matter how big a group you've got. You may be facing some fire hoses and stuff like that. But the Internet's a little bit different. Uh, I mean, I think you were maybe putting this, picture up to invite some kind of collective sentiment but really a lot of times on the at the on the internet you're all by yourself and you don't really know who's going to show up with the virtual equivalent of a fire hose right and you don't know with the internet and what's happening with the internet and with social media and the ability to share that the people who are most want to get their point across the most begin to share that with other people of the same sentiment and then the fire hose just gets bigger and bigger, and their agenda gets pushed farther and farther forward. That's what I was seeing. Well, I mean, let me just say this, David Barrow. Oh, you run a bike shop in Tallinn. Uh, I'm a, a cyclist. I need new gloves. Uh, I'll, I'll come out to Tallinn because, I mean, I think there are a, a lot of people who really do, obviously, who do share your sentiments. I mean, the Eric Garner case in particular uh, seems to have uh, united a lot of people who don't always see things exactly the same way. But I think the other thing that you experienced was a phenomenon that I call colonization, which is that once one group of people colonizes a thread, you know, if you've got 20 or 30 negative comments on a thread, it's going to be really hard to reverse the tone of the thread. I mean, if the first 10 or 15 comments that you had happened to get had been, I know, I feel sad too, this is terrible, what can we do as a society, how can we respond to this, you probably would have had a a thread of 100 or 200 people, most of whom were saying the same thing. Right. But colonization, I mean, once people kind of put their marker down one way or another on the thread, I think it's very hard to turn it around. Do you feel like you learned anything else? Is there a a lesson that you took away? Would would this make you less likely to do something like that in the future or more likely to do it a different way? Or what do you take away from all this? My wife and I would probably do it a little differently. I'm trying to be socially active in the community and with what goes on. So if I see something wrong, I'm not one to stand back and not say anything. So I would still want to have my voice, but I think we'd do it in a different way. All right. Well, David Barrow, thanks so much for sharing your story today, and happy cycling. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I wanted to end with this story because it it really goes well with Jason Sokol's point. These are things we don't talk about very much. Uh, Sometimes it's just a little signal that gets sent on the Internet. So I hope today maybe we helped you think and talk among yourselves about this really difficult subject a little better. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk to me so you can see.